You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Several uh, years ago, a friend of mine who's a pastor in the area, he put this little uh, Facebook question out there, and it, and it was, what does your pastor say most? And uh, I was just reading through the responses, and the responses he got, man, were just so encouraging. Like, I imagine he just had to walk away just feeling really well-loved. And I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that out on Facebook and see what the church, like, really takes away from all that I pour in to these sermons. And so I was like, hey, what, what do I say most as your pastor? And, and uh, I got some notifications. I saw like the little notifications popping up and I waited, you know, I was like, I don't want to play cool. And then I went and looked at it. And the first one, the first one on there was someone in the church that said, the reality is, that's what Pastor Michael says most. Then the next person jumped on and said, yeah, he says that all the time. And then somebody else chimed in and they were like, that's totally true. And that was it. <laughs> that was like, that was, that was the entirety of the discussion. Now the reality is that the question got me thinking. It got me thinking about defining characteristics. Right? What would defining characteristics of me be as a father or a husband or as a pastor, and by God's grace, it's more than just a repetition, right? If you guys remember back in high school, your senior year, they published these things in the yearbooks called superlatives. Anybody get a superlative here? Okay, we got it. We got a couple. All right, we know who the fancy people are. I did not get a superlative. Uh, superlatives are, by definition, kind of qualities that are, are like unique. They're of the, the highest degree, these qualities. When I think about defining characteristics or superlatives or these qualities to the highest degree, and when I specifically think about those qualities of people that we find, the people of God, heroes of our faith, the answer to what their superlative might be may surprise you. Does anybody know, like here's, here's my, uh, my theoretical situation. If Moses was getting ready to graduate high school and, and they, they wrote out, here's, here's Moses' superlative, you know? Most likely to be married or most likely to talk to a bush or whatever it might be, right? Do you know what God says Moses' superlative is? Anybody have a guess? What? Scared. Most scared. No, not that. That's a good one, though. What'd you say? Child of God. That's a great, great title. Most humble. Numbers 12.3 says this about the man who murdered someone. Now, the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. That's a superlative. The man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of 
the earth. All right, let's try a little easier one. What would Jesus' superlative be? Besides God, you know, most like God. That would, that would do it for him. Besides that one. Anybody else? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm laying it out. This is, a, this is a slow pitch softball right here. Gracious? It's true? Who, who, what was the other one? Righteous? No. No. Think about the one we just did. No. Meek. Yes. Humble. Yes. Jesus said of himself, which is pretty much God saying of himself, right? Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The, the Hebrew word for meek that describes Moses is anah, and it literally means to be bowed down, to be pressed low. The word in Greek that describes Jesus here as lowly in heart is, is actually a, a, a word that describes plants, shrubs that don't rise up off the ground. They only grow along the earth. One of the defining qualities of Christ our Savior, of the people of God, of the kingdom of God, is humility. It's honestly a quality that our culture has very little use for. It's not typically celebrated. Meekness, lowliness is not something that we typically aspire to. And quite honestly, it's also one of the hardest things, even if you do aspire to it, for us to grasp. But we must, if we are to experience our Savior and the kingdom of God. Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the whole earth. And Jesus is, is not talking about this earth now. He's talking about the, the, the eschatological earth, the kingdom to come, the new earth. When Jesus comes back and rights every wrong and recreates to its fullness this earth, Jesus says, the meek, they shall inherit the whole earth. Today, as we continue on in our sermon series through John, the Gospel writer gives us a spotlight into an interaction that I think allows us to do a deep dive into humility. Now, we got to work fast because i got five points for you today. Okay, So, I hope you guys like ate or like packed like a biscuit sandwich or something in your purse. If you did, will you come talk to me? I want to know the type of person that did because I want to be your friend and talk to you about planting a church in Texas. Okay? Uh, five things, all right? Five aspects of humility that we want to do a deep dive into today that defines someone that has been transformed by the kingdom of God and what flows out of him. The posture of humility. The position of of humility. Guess what's next? The focus of humility. I couldn't come up with all peace. The end of humility and the root of humility. The posture, the position, the focus, the end, and the root. Let's jump in. Our story begins in verse 22. John gives us context to this interaction. He says, after this, that would be after Jesus meets with Nicodemus, 
right? After that entire section of Jesus in Jerusalem with His disciples, after the clearing and cleansing of the temple that we read at the end of chapter 2, after this, we're told, Jesus and His disciples go out into the Judean countryside. So they leave Jerusalem, the city hub, and they go out into the countryside and they remain there. And they're baptizing. And then we're told that John, John the Baptist, who we read of earlier, was also baptizing because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And then John the Gospel writer gives us this little note, John had not yet been put in prison. Now let me just define a little bit of the context, right? So John and Jesus' disciples are here in the countryside baptizing. Now this is a, what we would call a baptism of repentance. Right, so in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, John and Jesus are quoted as saying, repent and believe, or repent and be baptized. And so this is not the baptism that we celebrate that mimics, that pictures and, and repeats, if you will, death in Christ and new life. This was preparing for the Messiah to come, preparing for the kingdom. If you've been here before, one of the things right, we like to do is define words because they, the meanings are important. Repentance literally means to turn, to turn from. But typically, when we think of repentance, we think of stop doing bad things. It's, my, it's Michael's paraphrase dictionary. Right? But Jesus and John the Baptist, is, they're oftentimes talking to men and women who are of one of the most devout people on earth the people of God, the Jewish people. And so certainly there was sin that they were calling them to turn away from, but the baptism of repentance was not leave behind your bad actions. It was turn away from your false hopes. Clear the deck. Cling to nothing else. Hope in nothing else. Pursue pleasure, contentment, life in nothing else so that you are prepared to receive the kingdom of God. And as I mentioned, John, the gospel writer, ends with this little note that this interaction occurs before John is in prison. Now this seems like one of those Captain Obvious statements because he's about to talk to us about John and his disciples out in the countryside. But the gospel writer is trying to tell us something. This is one of the last interactions that we will read from John before he is imprisoned and eventually put to death. This is the, the, the last words, if you will, of a soon-to-be dying man. And I think what John is trying to say, the gospel writer, is look closely at what pours out of a man in his last moments. Now we're told in verse 25 that a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew, likely a Pharisee, over purification. We don't know exactly what the debate was, but Likely, there was ritual washing or purification rites that occurred either at the temple or as a part of the daily life of most Jews. This baptism that John was doing was a new thing within the Jewish community. And so it was likely that a Pharisee came up to John's disciples and started asking questions. What are you doing? Are you trying to overtake the, the, the rites at the temple and the washings that are prescribed in the law? And at some point in time, Jesus and his disciples get dragged into the conversation. 
At some point in time, maybe the Pharisees said, it's not just you, but look, your baptism is now spread to, to this other rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples who were doing the same thing. And then the disciples of John come back and ask John. They say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, we read about this earlier, to whom you bore witness, Witness as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Look, He is baptizing and all are going to Him. And before we jump into this study, this deep dive in humility, just hear this about John. It's easy to look at the disciples of John and, 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 and wag your head at them a little bit. And say, like, how selfish of them are they that they're coming back to John? How, how petty of a squabble is this. But I think actually what this testifies to is that John was beloved by his disciples. Right? John, John had given his life to declaring the coming kingdom of God and men and women had left everything to follow this man who everyone had to know was eventually going to end up in prison and dead. And many disciples loved him and so they came back to him and they said what is going on our our popularity is shrinking our crowds are leaving they're not coming to us for baptism anymore they're going to jesus and look at john's response that gives us first the posture of humility john says this a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You know, when, when we gather together for worship on Sunday, we take a lot of postures, right? We, we just stood when we read the Word of God. I'll, after the sermon, invite you to sit silently in prayer. Uh, maybe you, you raise your hands during worship in either celebration or, or as a sign of, God, I need you please come. But if you were raised maybe in, in, in the Catholic faith or a mainline Protestant church, uh, maybe you were used to kneeling in prayer. Right? And then perhaps my favorite posture that we take even on a Sunday morning is when I read the benediction or when someone reads a benediction to me and we extend our hands in order to receive the promises of the benediction. John tells us every person receives everything from the Lord. Key word, everything. Now, now this is just a fact. It is a fact that exists simply because we are the creation and not the creator. Right? God, we're told in Genesis, creates what's called ex nihilo, out of nothing. Only God takes nothing and makes something. The best artists, the best architects, engineers, builders, and scientists in the world do not, cannot, and will never create ex nihilo. They're derivative creators. They create out of what has already been created. In many ways, they don't create at all. All they do is reshape and reform. Right? So the very fact that we are creation 
means that we receive everything from the Lord. Everything that there is, is given by God. But John is not just saying that this is true, he's also saying that it's good. See, the, the, the first sin of humanity was the day that man and woman decided to take rather than to receive. Take rather than receive. It is a role taking for ourselves, deciding for ourselves, believing that we can create things, that we can control things that we were never designed to have. And this posture that pretends that we can actually create or control It doesn't bring us status or comfort or value. It brings us fear and exhaustion and anxiety. Jesus himself says this. He says, the lilies of the field do not strive. The birds of the air, they don't fret. But the crown jewel of creation, humanity, is also the most anxious of all of creation. Because we have taken the posture not of receiving, but of pursuing and taking and getting and controlling. Rachel and I were talking about this recently, uh, several articles. Everyone is testifying to the fact that mental health issues are way up recently, and this is not just the last two years in COVID, way before that, over the last 10 years. Right? I, I think of it this way, in the epitome of the history of the world, where we as a people have everything we could ever want, right? if, you, if you took the wealth of today and the last, let's say, 10 years, and then you took the wealth of the entire rest of history and added it together, the last 10 years would have more wealth. And yet... Though we have everything we could ever want, we are the most anxious people that have ever existed in the history of humanity. Because we bought into the lie that all that we have is from us, or that all that we have can be kept by us, or that all that we desire can be gotten by us. But John tells us it's a lie. Jesus invites us not to be adults that go and pursue and get, but children that receive. You know, the, 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 the funny thing, we, we have kids from four, almost four, we have a lot of kids, up to 13, almost 14. And, and so we're starting to get that, well, I wish I could go and do, or I wish I could, the, the, I wish I could be an adult. You know what, kids, just hear this from your parents, you know what every adult wishes? I wish I could be a kid. I don't want to have to go re-register my car and pay a million dollars. I don't want to fill up a gas tank and cry in front of the general public. Right? Is that just me? I'm sorry. That was a little confession right there. We were created to be children, to receive. The posture of humility is a posture of receiving. Now let's talk about the position of humility. John goes on and says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. 
John doesn't just recognize that his life and his role in ministry and his role in the kingdom has been chosen and given to him by his heavenly Father. He also recognizes that this posture of receiving puts him in the position to receive the greatest gift that he needs. He he reiterates to his disciples what he has already told us in the Gospel of John, that he is not the Christ. The Christ is the Greek word for the Messiah, the Jewish word that means Savior, the anointed King, the, the one that they, the people of God, that we have all been waiting for. And John says, that's not me. But implied in saying I am not the Messiah is that that means I need a Messiah. This is not a small shift in position. It is a huge one. The gap from needing a Messiah to having or being the Messiah is infinite. Uh, Think of it this way. Before I worked uh, here and in ministry, I worked uh, within the realm of contracting in the federal government. So for a while, I worked in an organization that had a very traditional hierarchy. Right? There was a director, and underneath the director, there were a number of managers, and underneath of them were some kind of sub-managers, and underneath of them were employees. A pretty traditional kind of pyramid scheme hierarchy of the government. And then I worked for a while in another organization that had what they coined a matrix management, Right? which meant that no one knew what was actually going on or who was in charge. Actually, what it was was that you had managers that managed personnel. They would okay your leave or your travel or or, or things like that. And then you had program managers that were in charge of the actual program work that was going on. Now, the beauty of this was I was not a personnel manager, but I was a program manager. So every once in a while, I got the distinct joy of managing my manager and doing personnel program reviews of my manager's performance. So, tricky and convoluted. I say that to say this. There's a hierarchy in the kingdom of God, but it's a real simple one. There's the king, and then there's everybody else. There is the savior, and everybody who needs to be saved. The position of true humility that John shows us has nothing to do with our horizontal position, our position amongst people, and it has everything to do with our vertical position underneath of and in relationship to the Lord. Or maybe another way to put it, true humility or the true position of humility It doesn't look to the left or the right. It doesn't compare your position to other people. It just ensures that you are in position underneath of the Lord. We almost never use umbrellas in our house, and it's because we have a lot of kids. Right? And so what happens is it rains, and if we get an umbrella out, we go outside, and then, like, if I'm holding an umbrella, like, five people try and get underneath the umbrella together. And the real issue isn't even that five people are trying to get under the umbrella. Because you know what they're doing the entire time they're under the umbrella? They're fighting over who can actually hold the umbrella and how it's going to be held and where they are in position in the umbrella. And you know what happens? 
Everybody gets wet. Okay? Microcosm of humanity. Nobody is caring whether that they are underneath of the protection and the glory and the joy and the goodness and the grace of Jesus, and they're spending their entire time fretting about where in that position horizontally they exist. And guess what happens? Everyone gets wet. Right? Like, I want to say to my kids, are you dry right now? Then don't move. Just stay where you are. And this is what we do in life. Humility pays no attention to the people to the left or the right. Our eyes do not go out. Our eyes go up. Because if we're under Him, then we're okay. That is the position of true humility. But John also says that humility has a focus. The focus of humility. John says, you bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. And then he goes on and he says, the one who, is, or who has the bride, he is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So, I have good vision. Like, I've got good vision. Rachel does not. That's why we ended up together. Okay? You can think on that for a minute. She told me a story one time about when she first got glasses. And she, like, got her glasses and she walked outside and she looked at the trees and she was like, there are leaves in what I thought was a bubble of green, right? This morning she told me she was in sixth grade when that happened, and so I'm not sure what occurred in science class with her up to that point, but the glasses allowed her to see clearly what was already there. It had always been there. The tree didn't change on the day that she put glasses on. But she could finally focus in on what was truly in front of her. And when we have a posture of receiving and we position ourselves, not looking horizontally, but fixing our eyes vertically, it then allows us to focus in on what the whole prize, goal, emphasis of humility is about. And John tells us what it is about, the focus of humility. He uses an analogy of a wedding, which is a common analogy in the Hebrew Old Testament that speaks specifically about the intimate relationship between God and his people. In the, the book of Jeremiah, one of my favorite passages, the Lord says to a people that have wandered away from him, where have you gone? Did I not betroth you to myself as a young bride? Did I not care for you like a loving husband. John uses this analogy here about Jesus. And I don't know if the Lord gave him supernatural insight or whether it was just simply by God's providence, but John uses Christ as 
the bridegroom and the people of God as the bride. And he explains that that's not his role to be the bridegroom, but instead is the friend of the bridegroom. The best man, if you will. And he says, there's only one thing that happens at the wedding for the best man. He rejoices over his friend. John shows us that true humility allows us to receive the true prize, which is love and awe and joy in Christ. John says, my joy is complete. Literally, it's filled up to the utmost, overflowing at the brim. Why? Because I see Jesus and I see His bride going to Him. And I am overjoyed. See, the, the focus of humility is not on our self. The focus of true humility is on Jesus. You guys have heard me use this C.S. Lewis quote over and over again. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility takes our eyes off of ourself. And it puts them on to Christ. We lose track of ourselves, of our place or our status because we are fixated on Christ. You know, when I was uh, a kid, uh, I used to watch uh, professional wrestling. Mm, yeah, back when it was good. Back in the days of Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior and other people that if you don't know, you should spend some good time looking them up. And uh, one of, the, one of the, the best things about being a military kid is when you would go overseas, you would have one channel. And it was all kind of culminated and curated by the Defense Department. But it also meant that we got pay-per-view without having to pay for pay-per-view. And so I'd get to watch these, these professional wrestling events. And, and uh, one time my mom came and talked to me and she, and she said, you know, when you get done watching these things, you you typically are like sick the next day. Like you'll run a fever. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And so the next time one of these shows came on and, and my guy got in the ring, my mom came over and, and she like took my pulse. She took my temperature. My temperature was up. And she was like, you're so involved in the wins and losses of this mythical person that you're making yourself sick like his victory was my victory and his losses were my losses this is what it means obviously i say this tongue-in-cheek please don't allow your kids to get that invested in professional wrestling or football or baseball i'll touch a little nerves here or dance or cheerleading Humility is being infatuated with Jesus to the point that His wins are our wins. We celebrate not our victories, His victories. We dream about not our victories, but His victories. We hope in not our victories, but His victories. This is what it means in humility, to have our lives f 
focused and directed, not on ourselves, but on Him, to be captivated by Him. This is the focus of humility, and then John gives us the end of humility. He ends this discussion with his disciples like this. He must increase, but I must decrease. Remember, this is a short time before John's arrest and eventually his death, but he gives a final summary of his future, of his mission, and of his hope when he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. What John is saying is both difficult to swallow and also the best news ever. He's telling us that humility leads to our diminishment and to Christ's exaltation, or maybe just to put it more directly, it leads to the death of us and life in Christ. Now listen, this is all of Scripture points to this. It's also something that we don't like to talk about, especially in the American church. If, if the, the, the foremost invitation of Christ from his own mouth is to come and rest, the second is to come and die. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To inherit the kingdom of God, we have to let go of the kingdom of this world. To embrace eternal life means we must let go of this life. That sounds impossible. But we can do this because ending this story the story of my life where I am in control, where I believe I have everything planned out, where I pursue my glory. The end of that story is the beginning of a far better one. C.S. Lewis, and what I've told you is one of my favorite books, The Last Battle, he says, now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever yet read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important, because humility does lead to our death, but in being joined to the death of Christ, we are also joined to His resurrection. Philippians 2, Paul says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Though he was in the form of God, equal with God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, there's death. What comes after death? By God's grace, therefore, God has highly exalted him. He's bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You get two options, your story or Jesus' story. And the world is going to try and lie to you and tell you 
that if you join Jesus' story, it ends in death. It doesn't. Your story does. His story ends in resurrection. His story ends in glory. His story ends in eternal joy. The end of humility can be summed up by Paul's words in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We've seen the the posture of humility to receive all things. The position of humility underneath of the Lord. We have seen together the focus of humility. That Jesus becomes our everything and the end of humility which will be the end of our life and the beginning of our life in Him. But I want to end at the beginning. I want to end at the root of humility. After John the Baptist's interaction, John the Gospel writer gives us a final summary beginning in verse 31. He says, He who comes from above, Jesus, is above all, but He is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in earthly ways. He who comes from heaven, Jesus, is above all, He bears witness to what has been seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the very words of God. He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and in given all things into His hand. And therefore, here's our restatement of John 3.16. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. John, the Gospel writer, sums up all of chapter 3, repeating what he said from the beginning. Jesus is everything. He is from above. Above all. The one who can and will save. We are of the earth, dust, broken, limited, but we are invited into the kingdom by the blood of Jesus. The way up is down. The way to life is death. The way to glory is humility, John sums up. But there's only one problem in in me teaching you all about humility. There's just one problem with instructing this way. And it's why John takes our eyes off of John the Baptist at the end of 3 and puts our eyes back onto the glory of Christ. See, because at the end of this sermon, if I stop here, you're tempted to do two things. One, you're tempted to look inward and figure out if you're humble or if you're prideful. And two, you begin to think about the things that you must do in order to become more humble. But this puts you in a bind. Tim Keller, a pastor and author I love, puts it perfectly. He says, we are on slippery ground with humility because it cannot be attained directly. Humility is a shy thing. If you begin to talk about it, it leaves. To even ask the question, am I humble, is to not be so. Examining your own heart, even for pride, will often lead you to being proud about your diligence or circumspection. 
You know, humility is not so much a command of the New Testament as it is described a fruit of the Spirit and a fruit of the Gospel. Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That word translated there, gentleness, is elsewhere translated as meekness, lowliness, and humility. Humility is a fruit, which means to come by it, you don't focus on it. Instead, you focus on the root that gives life. Jesus said that the only ones that will bear fruit are those who abide in him. Jesus is not just the epitome of humility. He's not just the focus of our humility. He's also the giver of true humility. Tim Keller in that same article sums it up this way. Humility is a byproduct of belief in the gospel. In the gospel, we have confidence not based on performance, but in the love of God in Christ. This frees us from having to always be looking at ourselves. Because Jesus had to die for us, we are humbled and our pride is put to death. But because Jesus was glad to die for us, we are loved out of our need to prove ourselves. Humility is blessed self-forgetfulness. So may the Lord grant us the grace, the fruit to have our eyes eternally fixed on Jesus, to be free from ourself, and to be full of Him. Pray with me.